2: Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arboff from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. Actually, we get more questions via email and, and text by now, but we love your phone calls. It makes the program go a little bit faster and certainly more interesting with you talking instead of just me. Our phone number for your live calls is area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. With your hands-free feature, one button, call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Monday, we always have a bunch going on. Ladies, tonight uh, we continue our Sweet Summer Devotion Series here at Calvary Chapel. Tracy Nugent is the lady to pray for. Tonight, she will be sharing her heart. Tracy has been with our church and her husband, Gary, uh, and Isaac, their son, and by the way, her parents as well. For Tracy and Gary have been here for probably 21, if not 22 of our 23 years. So um, I'm curious to see what she's going to have to share tonight. But that's the Sweet Summer Devotion series uh, at 7 o'clock. Uh, we also have, of course, um, men's bible study youth bible studies high school and our junior high school bible study so you can bring the whole family and for kids younger than junior high we have child care available uh, as well so that's tonight at seven o'clock um, ladies you can live stream it at calvarysa.com if you are unable to get here um, i hope you had a great day in church yesterday we did here it was busy it was packed And that's always a really, really good thing. So um, getting ready to start a new week. August is coming up. Don't tell Paula I told you, but her birthday is a week from tomorrow, I think. No, her birthday is this Thursday. Is it this Thursday? Oh, okay, her birthday is Thursday on the Date Day edition. Wow, I didn't... I wasn't going to miss it, but I thought it was a week from tomorrow, but oh well. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in. Here is a question that I had since early last week, and I'm sorry, Anonymous. I just lost it sort of in my email inbox, but we found it. Um, Anonymous question is, what is the purpose of the red heifer in the Old Testament? Um. This red heifer has been lied about and spoken about and just uh, amazing thing, the, 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 the number of different theories there are. Um, there are so many unique factors regarding this animal for sacrifice, its prophetic value has not has already been fulfilled. There are people who try to portray it as though it's not been fulfilled. Um, this was a female instead of a male. Uh, this female could never have been pregnant. That means she would have been pure. Um, it had to be red in color, and it would be sacrificed away from the tabernacle outside the camp. Now, already, those of you who know your Bibles, are getting an idea of what the value of this red heifer And the offering, it's all about, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. Um, Usually it would be only the male that would be sacrificed in the other offerings. Um, But this one was slaughtered by somebody other than a priest. Um, Additionally, the blood was not collected, but it was poured out before God. Um, But the blood was burned with the rest of the offering, and the ashes collected from the sacrifice were used in ceremonial cleansing rituals. All of that to say, the red heifer has no value, prophetic or otherwise, for those of us who are here. In the Old Testament, this was a picture, a very important picture of Jesus Christ. The red color points to the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. Uh, This is why the animal, of course, had to be perfect and without spot or blemish, because Jesus, of course, was. Um, The sacrifice was fresh. Uh, The animal had never been used uh, in service. The animal had never been yoked. So the idea there was pointing to uh, the greater sacrifice to come. So that really is the only value uh, in this sacrifice at all. Uh, red heifers are being, still to this day, red heifers are being uh, bred, um, there are people out searching for the perfect one, um, but, but the sacrifice has been fulfilled, so I hope that helps Anonymous. Sorry that took me so long to get to it. Here is a question from our email inbox from Carl. Uh, how do you prepare for your sermons in terms of steps you take to get proper context, background, information, and outline? Um, Carl, I'm going to do two things. I'm not going to try to drag this out because most people aren't interested in how I do something. Um, but but uh, I'm going to do it the way I used to do it and the way I do it now. Um, uh, I've I always been a voracious reader now that I'm visually impaired. Uh, It's really, really difficult for me to read. It's just arduously long and difficult. Um, But I'm a big reader, and fortunately the Lord gave me a a mind. I can retain what I read, so I could read several things at at the same time. Uh, But the idea was always to prepare, um, to find out not what I had to say, not what people in commentaries have to say, but Jesus, what do you want to say to the people that you love? So the way I've always done it is to read the passage over and over and over and over and over. Now, today, Paula reads the passage to me uh, repeatedly. I do three Bible studies a week, Carl. I do uh, three Sunday services. I do a Wednesday Old Testament study and then a different New Testament study from Sunday on Friday night. So I've always got um, this reading going on. And Paula will read something repeatedly today. For example, she read, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 this coming Sunday. And I had to read uh, the passage that I'm going to be teaching three times, uh, one out of the New Living Translation, the other out of the, the 84 NIV. Um, I, I want the word to be circulating in my heart and in my mind. Um, it used to be when I would sit down at a keyboard, I would just take the outline, just the, 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 the verses. And as the Lord was speaking to my heart, I'd read them, and then I would always think application, Carl. What do you want me to do with this? I want the people to be able to use it. After I would get to that point, then I would spend some time in some commentaries that I knew and 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 uh, had had and knew they had value. And um, um, once I make sure I'm not off the beaten path somewhere, then it really boils down to the last few days. Before the message of just trying to be sure that I'm saying what God wants, Uh, you know, I don't ever try to give everybody all the information. But uh, I want to—what does the Lord want our people to hear? Um, Carl, there's one thing—if you're especially in in studying the Gospels, um, context becomes really important. Uh, the audience to whom Jesus is speaking uh, is is of paramount importance. Keeping the context matters, or you're going to lose the whole import of the passage. So those are the things that I would do. Now, the reason I said I'd do the second part is because I don't have to do all that work anymore. Um, um, you know, I've written, I've got my own personal commentaries on every book in the New Testament and most of the books in the in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, Because it's 23 years, you can imagine we've taught them all. And in the New Testament, we've taught them uh, more than once. And some, we've taught them three and four times. So, for instance, this week, I'm going to uh, be in Luke chapter 5. All I have to do is is pull my notes. The the research has already been done. Uh, So then it's just really nothing more than a matter of getting the Word in my mind and in my heart and then just trying to pull out of it what God wants. One other thing, Carl, and then we'll move on. Uh, We do three Sunday services here, and every service is different. Uh, I've got the study written out. um, I've got uh, my notes before me, but because I'm visually impaired, I can't see them. Uh, Really, that's nothing more than a guide for me. And when I'm doing the Bible study, I'm trying to be open to what the Spirit wants to say. For instance, three services yesterday, I used the same set of notes, but uh, all three services had different elements in it. And, and I do that because I feel like there's different people in the audience. God knows who he's speaking to, what he wants to say. And I want to be sure that they hear what God wants them to hear. So the, the studies are never identical. Uh, sometimes they'll go off on a tangent in one study and not in the others. Um, but most of the time, they're similar, um, but different application elements. Carl, for me as a Bible teacher, the application is is sort of the dessert. Uh, I want to know, the people know what it says, what it means, but then I want them to be able to use it when they get home. When they leave the Bible study, I want them to say, wow, I learned something about how to live my life with Christ. So that's how I prepare for form now. It's much easier now than it was um, when it would take me hours and hours and hours and hours Uh, to prepare for a single Bible study. Um, If if it took me that long today, Carl, I wouldn't be able to do the three different studies that we do each week. So I hope that is a little bit of what you're hoping for or looking for. Let's go to our friend in San Leandro, California, Tanya. Thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. Happy Monday to you. Off to a good start. Thank
2: you. (laughs) It is. Thanks.
3: Wonderful! I'd give Mama Paula my love. I know she's listening. So hi, Mama Paula. Um, Don't forget to
2: tell her. Don't forget to tell her happy birthday Thursday.
3: Oh, I will. I will do that for sure. (laughs) Um, Without a doubt. I love her. Um, Pastor Ron, I have a question. And and this is another one of the uh, tragedies of being unequally yoked. I I came alongside a a couple. Uh, The husband is saved and the wife is not. And um, they are experiencing he He is trying, obviously to sh- share our Jesus uh, with his spouse, his wife. and um they are struggling in the sense of financial responsibility um, from her standpoint. She'll say he's controlling because of money, he controls the money uh, from his standpoint, he'll say, if I let her have run rampant with the money, we'll be broke. Um, i don't I understand that as as a a believing couple, you can I love when you say, a couple can can choose never to argue again if they agree to agree with God, um, mm-hmm. and I believe that. And um, but when the couple is unequally yoked, and 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 again, uh, as a warning for anybody listening, um, how can I best minister? I, I'm trying to obviously appeal to the believer, uh, the husband, about the responsibilities, the oneness. Um, but when it comes to to finances, um, how do you have any? You know, I'm, I'm trying to really, really help them. Um, you know, is she worthy of another chance? Yes, she did almost uh, run them into substantial debt. Um, but it's that, you know, she says, when is he going to let me prove that I have changed? And, of course, he's very apprehensive, almost losing everything. Um, what's the best way to minister to a couple in this situation from the godly perspective? And I will take your answer off the air. I just really wanted to get some good godly counsel. Yeah.
2: Tanya, thank you. This is in, in Tanya issued the warning, and this is this is why the the the, the Lord so desperately uh, warns us against unequally yoked relationships. These are these are problems with no solutions. And I'm not going to be a whole lot of help here, Tanya, because um, the Bible means it when it says, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? That's Amos three, 3. And, and we've got a couple here who've never agreed to walk together. Um, I, I think there are consequences to terrible decisions. I think this is one of those times when a husband and a wife need to go to a budget counselor, uh, not a not a godly counselor she's not going to listen to godly counsel, but to a budget counselor um there's some great stuff now um, um the, the name in this guy's with Jesus now, but the name's Larry Burkett. he's still got some really good stuff online that that a husband and wife can sit down and agree to, and then the budget just requires discipline and discipline then um, um takes away any need to say, well, when can I start proving that? It's, it's what a husband and wife has to do. Let's sit down to, to determine our goals. Uh, what can we do with the money that we make and the obligations that we have? And how can we get out of debt? And how can we do those other things? And, and budgeting is an absolute essential uh, in the world that we live in, especially where you're from in California when everything is so expensive. Now, on the other hand, if she is working... That's one of the other issues with people that live in California. It requires two incomes almost always. That's how expensive things are. And and obviously an unbelieving woman who is not um, um, yoked together with her husband in terms of the direction that they're going, uh, she's going to want to have uh, the ability to spend some of the money that she's working for. Um, so so th- th- there's either going to be agreement or there's not He needs to be cautious uh, because she almost ruined him once but at the same time uh, he needs to understand that she doesn't share any of the same values. And, um, you know, the way to win her heart is not to give in to her but at the same time not to dictate to her Um, The way to win her heart isn't just to tell her about Jesus, but to show her Jesus. And it can begin with this conversation. This is simply a negotiation. When a husband and wife are not equally yoked, it's simply a negotiation. You want to spend more money. You almost broke us one time. How can we accomplish this to make sure that you don't make those same mistakes, to be sure that you've changed, and at the same time understand that our views on money are never going to be the same? Uh, A woman who feels like she is being controlled by an overbearing husband with regard to finances is eventually going to run away. Either literally run away or or at least emotionally run away. Uh, They will shut down. So they, they really need to go to budget counseling. They need to agree on a common direction, and then they need to be grown up enough to discipline themselves to do it. The whole time understanding that her problem isn't with money her problem is the fact that that money and spending it is what provides her satisfaction because she doesn't have the satisfaction of knowing Jesus Christ so Tanya I apologize deeply because I don't have um, much counsel for an unequally oak situation first uh, Peter chapter 3 needs to be um, uh, the, the passage of scripture that he lives by uh, it's written of course to a woman married to an unbelieving man, but it works just as well uh, in reverse, Uh, and he needs to understand that his goal is to be responsible, to care for her, and to exercise leadership in the home at the same time, um, understanding that they're not going in the same direction, and there just isn't any easy solution. In fact, there's no solution at all for people who are not going in the same direction. Uh, so, again, Tanya, I apologize. That's not much help, I realize. Um, if I were counseling that couple, um, that's exactly what I would tell them. If they were in my office right after this program, I would tell them that there's no solution because you're both walking different directions. And I would point out the obvious things that, that, that obviously, unless you walk in the same direction, you're never going to be on the same road, you're never going to hit the same destination and I would use that as an opportunity to share Jesus with the unbeliever I'd try to tell her how blessed she really is by having a man who loves Jesus a man who's responsible who's watching out for her future and her security but to expect her to understand apart from Christ just isn't going to work So, Tanya, I'm really sorry. There's just nothing much more that we can do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from Darlene from our email inbox. How do you know what is prophetic in the Old Testament? which was fulfilled in the New Testament or has to be fulfilled or what applied to Israel. I've been told that there are no more prophecies to be fulfilled till the second coming of Christ. Darlene, uh, let me deal with the last sentence first. Uh, There are some prophecies that have to be fulfilled before the second coming of Christ. There are no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Um, The church is going to be raptured. The Great Tribulation is going to begin... Uh, so the, the prophecies of the rapture of the church, the many, many Old Testament pictures of the rapture of the church, those are the kind of things that have to happen uh, before the second coming of the Lord uh, in judgment. Uh, but but in terms of the, the rapture of the church and the beginning of the Great Tribulation, there is literally not a single unfulfilled prophecy. So I hope that distinction is clear. We always, especially speaking about prophecy, we have to make a difference, a distinction, clear distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, he came to save the world. When he comes the second time, Darlene, then he is going to judge the world, uh, and that's what we know as the Great Tribulation. But as of the rapture of the church, it's going to happen just seven years, Years prior to to his second coming, there's absolutely no prophecy that that has to be fulfilled. Now, how do we know what's prophetic in the Old Testament? It's a little more difficult to explain, because the very nature of prophecy often has both short-term and long-term fulfillment. Uh, if you will read the Olivet Discourse, look at Matthew chapter twenty-four and twenty-five, and then compare it with the same. Uh, message with different details in Luke chapter 21. Uh, you'll see that that some of those prophecies uh, were fulfilled. Uh, in 70 A.D. when when the Roman general uh, Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem, completely destroyed it and burned the city to the ground uh, so much so that you couldn't tell there was a city there. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, warned against that coming destruction, which would be only about 38 years uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, but but obviously, the, there's a, a, a longer-term fulfillment of that prophecy, uh, which won't be fulfilled until the very end. When we're looking at the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament will sometimes give us indications about some of the prophecies that are fulfilled already. Um, there are messianic prophecies that have always universally been uh, recognized as, as being messianic in character and nature. Um, But to get the full picture, uh, some of those are fulfilled. Let me give you just one example from a study that we did just recently, Darlene. Uh, When Jesus entered into the synagogue very early and a scroll was handed to him, the scroll was open to Isaiah chapter 61, and obviously there was no chapter and verse divisions, but Jesus read it, and he read um, um, a, a, a prophecy about the coming of the Christ Uh, the things that the Christ would do. And he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That scripture is fulfilled. But he left off a sentence. The next sentence is, or the next part of that same sentence is, And the day of vengeance of our Lord. He left that off. So obviously, that is a longer term prophecy fulfillment. The day of vengeance, that is a reference to the great tribulation so um, I think just familiarity studying it um, understanding what the New Testament tells us about prophecies that are fulfilled or Jesus uh, prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled Um, but I I think it takes a a consistent effort at studying prophecy Um, most of the time it's not hard to identify the prophecies that have been fulfilled but Again, like in the isaiah sixty one passage uh, it's cut off the prophecy of of uh, Daniel chapter nine uh, the seventy weeks of Daniel. We know that that um, um, most of those seventy weeks sixty nine of them in fact have been fulfilled, and now we're in a break. Um, the seventieth week of Daniel will be fulfilled, but it won't commence until the great tribulation begins so i hope that kind of gives you a sketch um darlene at com. you can go through the prophetic books i've done jeremiah and i've done ezekiel and i've done zechariah the the difficult ones um and and repeatedly through those we talk about scriptures that have been fulfilled and then the long-term fulfillment of prophecy daniel is another good book Thank you, darling. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. You're listening to the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We will be back in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left, 340-9585. Let's get right back to the questions from our mobile app, uh, Anonymous How can a person determine if a dream or vision they've experienced is from the Lord? Anonymous, very, very carefully. Uh, Two things. One, if God gives you a dream or a vision, and he still speaks to people that way, he wants you to know what it means. Now, there are times when he just, gives you the dream or vision, and you have to patiently wait for the understanding, if it is from the Lord. When you need to know, he'll make sure you you understand. I have seen a lot of damage done, anonymous, by people who wanted to know so badly, they kept asking everybody their opinion, and uh, the, the end result was that they never had any clarity at all. The second thing we need to do is understand that most dreams are just that, they're just dreams. For me, I call them nightmares, uh, but they're just dreams. So we can't be one of those people that's always looking for every dream or vision uh, under every rock. So just be very, very careful. If it's from the Lord, it's going to happen. It's just that simple. If it's not from the Lord, it's not going to happen. Sometimes we put too much stock, we take too much ownership of the dream or the vision... And when it doesn't happen, then the enemy's got all kinds of opportunities to cast doubt. Have you ever heard from the Lord? How do you know what's from the Lord or what's not from the Lord? I think we just have to wait. And our confidence is this. If he gives you a dream or vision, he wants you to know what it is. And what you have to do is file it away. And at just the right time, you'll know. You know, Anonymous, I'm not a dreamer. I've had a couple of dreams that, that turned out to be from the Lord uh, in the past. But Paula has had many of them, and in almost every case, her dreams uh, were, or, or visions, and I, I don't know exactly how to make the distinction between the two, but in, in, in most of the cases, um, her dreams or visions were about things that were going to be happening Uh, God actually told by way of explanation, um, Paula, things that were happening, we were living through difficult things or troubling things, and he would give her the the meaning of it, Um, but we wouldn't really understand clearly the meaning of it until uh, years had gone by. Uh, There was one, uh, I'll give you an example when we were going through a really, really hard time, just, again, because of my sin. But uh, here I'm brand-newly saved. Um, everything is hard. We've lost everything. Uh, and the Lord wanted to encourage her, and he gave her a, a vision of of um, um, a boat tied up on a little Gilligan's Island-type island. Type island. Uh, there were two palm trees and tied up on each end of the boat from from a palm tree. There was this boat, and I was walking from one direction, and she was walking to the other direction. We both untied our end and got in the boat together and began to to sort of sail off. And in the process, Paula uh, pointed and looked at the shore, and there were people following us, Um, people jumping in. They were running after us, swimming after us. Uh, Lots of people were on the shore, kind of wanting to come but afraid to come. And it was such a beautiful picture of the work that God was doing. Um, bringing us together in this work that we call Coward Chapel. Uh, But it it took a very long time for either of us to understand um, what God was trying to say. So that was one of the the dreams or visions that needed to be filed away. So if God tells you something, it's something you need to hear, but it's also something you want you to understand— And so you ask, and that's going to require time in the Word, it's going to require time in prayer. Um, Don't be in a hurry to try to determine uh, what's from God, what am I supposed to do? Uh, Be very patient with those dreams. If you look at the Old Testament when dreams are literally everywhere, visions are everywhere, in most of those dreams and visions, God would have to later send an explanation um, most often the people didn't know at the time they received the vision or had the dream they didn't know what it meant but God would explain it at just the right time so just be careful not to be a um, I had a dream so I'm going to change everything kind of person just wait for the Lord to kind of give you the direction he'll do that uh, at just the right time I say that to you and I'm impatient (laughs) I think most of us are but we learn very quickly not to put pressure on ourselves to be right here is a question from Casey from our email inbox you often hear people say that Christians are not supposed to judge others and Matthew 7-1 is quoted Is this true? What's a proper understanding of what Jesus was speaking to in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6? Casey, verse 1, Judge not lest ye be judged by God, is the most well-known verse in the New Testament among unbelievers. Even unbelievers have that verse memorized. So let me start with what this verse cannot mean. It cannot mean that Jesus is calling us to universal acceptance of any lifestyle or teaching. When we tell somebody by looking at their behavior, what you're doing is wrong, don't judge, the Bible says don't judge. That's not what Jesus means. We have multitudes of scriptures that tell us we're supposed to examine fruit, we're supposed to look at lifestyles, we're supposed to point out sin. So it cannot mean that Jesus is calling us to accept any type of lifestyle or teaching. Um, I've heard people even say, uh, some of them sincerely religious people, some of them professing Christians, say that we we judge other people, we say that Christians are the only ones who are going to get to go to heaven. Well, that's what Jesus himself says, so that's not judging. So what we've got to do is understand that instead of judging people's hearts, Our responsibility is to tell them what God says about their behavior. We point out sin in people's lives so they have a chance to recognize that what they're doing is wrong. Now, to to a lot of us it sounds silly because we think, well, everybody knows what they're doing is wrong. But I cannot tell you how many people, women especially, Casey, that have come into my office, uh, they're in a relationship, a physical, sexual relationship with somebody they're not married to, and they never knew it was wrong. And I mean, sincerely, they never knew it was wrong. They've grown up in homes where even the parents encouraged it. So we point out sin to give them a chance to, to to identify what their sin is and repent from it. Then we give them God's word, and when we give them God's word, God is the one who's judging. Make no mistake, he's the one qualified to judge. We're simply reporting what God says, and God has given us a standard by which to measure behavior, not only ours, but others'. It is God the Holy Spirit who makes them feel like they're being judged. And that's just Jesus calling them to himself. So it cannot mean that we just have to say, okay, that's that's, we accept. We just say, no, the Bible is the standard. When we confront somebody in love, it has to be okay with this case even when we're unfairly accused of being judgmental. That's just the way it's going to be. And what we have to do is be comfortable enough being obedient to what Jesus told us to do, that we understand that people are, gotten, are, are not going to receive what we have to say. They're not going to like us very much sometimes. And that has to be okay. So that's what he's talking about. Now, chapter 7, just so that you can get some context, is sort of the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, so all of what came before is sort of summarized In chapter 7, and that's what it's being talking about. You know, the word in Greek for judge is a word that means to distinguish or decide, and the implication is in a condemning or punishing way. That means we're to discern right from wrong, but remember this, Casey, we're never to judge the heart or the motive behind the. Um, the behavior just identify sin and tell them hope that helps thank you Casey very very much here is a question from our email inbox from Drew oh good hear from you again Drew haven't heard from you for a while Uh, Pastor Ron I know there are examples of people exercising free will when called by God Abraham and Moses are probably the best examples. What is somewhat bothersome is the beloved Apostle Paul. His calling to serve Jesus seems to have been forced against his free will by the Damascus Road experience. We can assume that if he had not been blinded and forced to the ground, he would have stayed the course of persecuting those who joined the first Jesus movement. Do you see my point? Well, Drew, I don't, and and, and I guess I, I can understand where you're coming from. Um, but, but this is such an important conversion experience, and we're, we're given the detail, um, with such precise detail, in fact, that, that the explanations are made to us based on what we see. Um, when Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was apprehended on the road to Damascus, what blinded him was seeing the glory of God. He saw Jesus. He heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his response was, Who are you, Lord? Now, two things that we know about Saul's conversion experience, we know about his heart. That Paul, when he was Saul, when he was zealously persecuting Christians, was doing what he really and sincerely believed to be the right thing. He was really seeking God and thought that he was serving God. He said he was zealous, but his zeal was without knowledge. But the idea is, because God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, and because Saul thought he was doing God's work, God made it very clear to him that it wasn't. But make no mistake, Saul still had to make the choice. Now this is an instance where God does what he has to do to accomplish his will in our lives. Saul had to get to the bottom. Saul, when Jesus said it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? It indicates that that Saul has been fighting, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit for a very long time. I personally think, Drew, that he began resisting the, the drawing of the Holy Spirit to him right after the death of Stephen. I think when Saul of Tarsus heard Stephen say, "'Lord, lay not this charge to their account.'" Because Saul would have been one of those people at the cross at Calvary when Jesus was on that cross. He would have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he heard Stephen say the same thing, different words but the same thing, that's when Saul began resisting, kicking against the goads of what the work the the Spirit of God was doing. And on his road to Damascus, Syria, he had to come face to face with Jesus himself, the risen Christ. And then he made the right choice. What do you want me to do, Lord? And he told him to go into Damascus. The man the named man, Ananias would come to him, and you know the story. But he had free will completely. Um, Circumstances sometimes have to crush us to get us to that most desperate point. And when Jesus said, why do you persecute me? What he was saying was, to, to, to Saul, who will become Paul, what he was saying is, look, you've been chasing me, you've been persecuting me, but really, you've been running from me. You know I've been knocking at the door of your heart. You know how hard this has been. And Saul, at that point, could do nothing but but agree. Now, my conversion experience, Drew, wasn't anything like Saul of Tarsus, certainly not as dramatic or, 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 or anticlimactic. But what's really important for us to understand here is that every one of us, God will take to the place we need to be so that we can make the right choice. That doesn't mean we always will, but we can make the right choice, and certainly he did. So I hope that helps, Drew. Good to hear from you again. Thank you for calling. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Gary, Pastor. On where do you draw the line between essential doctrines and non essentials when it comes to dividing people? Um, Gary, I draw the line. The essentials, of course, are those things that deal with the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. We had a lady come to the church not long ago who was upset, loudly upset, because. Uh, she, she, in terms of asking questions, she came looking for a fight. But she wanted the opportunity to shout out in the parking lot and in the church that, that uh, her Jesus-only doctrine, that Jesus was the Father and Jesus was the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they would be three gods, and this was heresy. Um, um, her, her understanding of God is an essential. Uh, an essential is the virgin birth of Christ. The essential is that he lived, he died, he rose again. The essential is, as I said a moment ago, one God manifests in three persons. So those are the things where the line has to be drawn. The non-essentials, we want to give people more liberty. Our tongues for today. What about the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, well, I can make a very strong case for what we believe, I can have fellowship with somebody, and I'm sure there are people who come to our church who don't believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Uh, they're wrong, but but that's okay. We can still have fellowship. Now, when I draw the line when it comes to people in our church is, is when it comes to bad teaching that causes people harm. Uh, we have a lot of people in our church who have come out of the word-faith movement, and they have been so damaged by it Uh, those who claim their healing. Um, Those are not essentials of our historic Christian faith, but when they harm people, and those pernicious doctrines do, well, that's where I draw the line. That's where I'll take a stand and say, that's not going to be permitted here at Calvary Chapel. You cannot tell people here that this is the truth because it harms them. So the essential doctrines we, we need to have complete unity on the essentials. Um, I, I mentioned some of them, there are others, but, but those are the things that deal with the character and the nature of God. When we start changing who Jesus is, well that's when we start um, we're, we're compromising essentials of our faith. Um, when it's just bad teaching, uh, what we like to do is give people a chance to sit around for a while, uh, Gary, learn. Uh, listen, and then be able to rightly divide the word for themselves. But uh, believe me, I'm a I'm a pastor and when somebody comes in uh, and they're going to spread false doctrine um, that, that can hurt the sheep that God has given us, well, that's when uh, I'm going to have a really difficult time with them. So that's where I personally draw the line. Thank you, Gary. Good question. Here is... A question from. I can't, right there, Mary. I've been married. That's what I was going to do. I've been married eight years. We've been having a lot of problems. I no longer wish to be married to him. He's a Christian, but doesn't apply God's word. We have also been separated. I'm frustrated and don't know what to do. I'm so confused. Help, Mary. I'm assuming that you're a Christian. I'm sorry for your pain. Um, But here's what you need to understand. As a believer, you've already promised God you'd stay married. You hate the things that Jesus hates. You love the things that Jesus loves. Now, Mary, I'm going to give you the opportunity to call in. I I hope you do that and talk to Paula on Thursday. Because she was in that situation you're in only. We had been married for a lot longer. She was saved 13 years, and God told her to stay with me. Um, A a Christian who doesn't apply God's word, that's somebody who's... um, I mean, I would ask him if, if he were here, and I was doing counseling with him. I'd say, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? You know, the fact that you're raised in a church or you got baptized or that you answered an altar call, none of that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is loving Jesus. Jesus said, if you love him, you'll obey me. It's that simple. And so um, uh, I always treat people, Mary, if they're acting in an ungodly way, I, I treat them as unbelievers. It doesn't matter what they say. And if they get offended, and they say, "Well, I'm a Christian," well, how would I know you're a Christian the way you're behaving? If 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 your wife says that you don't apply God's word, what makes you think you're a believer? The Bible is written, and believe me, in counseling. I want people to have to questions about their salvation if they're not abiding in Christ. So I would treat him like an unbeliever, and unfortunately, as an unbeliever, First Peter chapter three is what you're instructed to do, to to win him over without words by your behavior, your godly behavior, like Sarah, or to imitate her faith. But the fact that you just don't want to be married to him anymore doesn't give you an out. Go to your pastor, get some counseling, But understand that you promised Jesus you'd stay married. Now, if he's cheated on you, that violates the the marriage covenant. You have an out. But remember, as a believer, we're not looking for outs. We're supposed to be looking for ends. When they came to Jesus to talk about divorce, Jesus said, and I'm going to paraphrase to make my point here, I don't want to talk about divorce. Let's talk about marriage. In the beginning, God made man and woman that they would be married and remain one flesh forever. So this is a matter now of obedience. Is Jesus enough for you in your pain? Now this may sound brutal. I don't mean it this way at all. But over and over and over throughout the years I've had people in situations like yours come and say, well, I can't take any more. I'm just going to divorce. And they think that's going to solve their problems and things get worse. Mary, as a believer... You have to agree with Jesus. What God told Paula was, I hate divorce and I love Ron. Will you hate what I hate and will you love what I love? And it was impossibly difficult for her. But God's grace was sufficient for her and his grace will be sufficient for you. And this is a time where you have to immerse yourself in God's word. You have to immerse yourself in your personal relationship with Jesus and treat your husband like an unbeliever. And when I say that, I mean win his heart by being the godliest, most loving wife in the history of the world. Make him the object of your ministry instead of viewing him as the enemy of your ministry. And as painful as that is, I promise you'll be more painful to divorce without reason. The Bible says that Jesus speaking, that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts. Well, because of the hardness of our hearts, we still break promises to Jesus regarding marriage all the time. We think, well, that's going to be okay. I'll be happier. But if you make that decision, then you've got to remain unmarried. That's the consequence of your behavior. So these are tough questions. But now your choice is, are you going to choose Jesus' side or are you going to take the easy way out just because you're uncomfortable? So instead of complaining that he doesn't apply God's word, you make sure you do. And Mary, as I say this to you, I am completely 100% aware of how difficult and painful this is, and I'm truly, truly sorry. But the only answer is and always has been obedience. In a marriage like yours, God is looking for one of the professing Christians to represent him in his home. His home, not yours, his. And he's asking, will it be you? And so that's what you're confused about one other thing, don't look for people who will tell you, oh God wants you to be happy, get a divorce things will be better if you get rid of him that will lead to nothing but more pain so I can end your confusion, commit to staying in the marriage get so close to Jesus closer than you've ever been before and let him be your husband for a while, and here's what I can promise will happen, Jesus will begin when you're being obedient when you're all in in this Jesus will turn his attention to your husband. And if he really belongs to Jesus, then his situation will be impossible. You just can't run away from God. I know I tried. I'll be praying for you. Mary, if this is really hard to hear, please consider prayerfully calling the show on Thursday and let Paula minister to you. I'm sure that she'll encourage you. That's all we have for today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, Sweet Summer Devotions tonight at 7 o'clock. Tracy Nugent is the lady to pray for. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. God bless.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arball. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4